everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode 98, and today I've got a special guest, another local sawmill, in this case, a very local sawmill, about a 40-minute drive from me. In fact, someone that I have bought lumber from in the past, but so long ago that he doesn't remember it, and I barely remember it. So I have Josh Wirtz from Goodwood Lumber LLC on the show. Thanks for joining the show, Josh. Thanks. Thanks, Shannon. So I, let's see, um, your story is kind of interesting to me because I remember when you had started Sawing Logs and I feel like I ran across your name in a forum somewhere. You know, this is back in the days of, well, they still have internet forums, but when like that was still a big deal. And somebody had said, there's this guy named Josh who's up in Pennsylvania, like, I don't know, Shrewsbury-ish, somewhere in that area. And he's got some walnut. And I was like, okay, that sounds cool. Cause I was looking for air dried material at the time. And, uh, that was how I first came across you. Um, and it was like okay. this random afternoon. I like went up and there was like, I don't know, it was like you had just saw a walnut log. And at the time I feel like you were just getting into it and maybe we're still, it wasn't like the full-time job. So tell me a little yes. bit about the history of Goodwood's Lumber. Like how did it start? Cause your website talks about like 30 years of woodworking and cabinet making that's turned into sawing. So obviously there's, there was a life before sawing there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I grew up working for a uh, family owned business. My dad was a custom home builder. Um, you know, I worked for him from the time I was a little kid on, and then I started doing a lot of the building work. I don't know, probably right out of high school, my early twenties. Um, you know, started doing that. It got pretty good at it. So I decided to open up a small cabinet shop. I uh, ran that for, you know, I don't know, probably 12, 14 years. And okay. then, uh, I was living in Maryland at the time. So we decided to uh, buy a piece of property up here in Shrewsbury. It's been, it's been about eight years now, <coughs> excuse me. Um, so we, um, we bought a piece of property and I cleared the lot and I hired a sawyer to come out and cut, you know, all the chestnut oak logs and maple logs I had on the property and the lumber. And, uh, you know, being a, a wood guy and in a cabinet shop for all those years, I was hooked right away. <laughs> right. Yeah. I was like, I, I got to get into this somehow. So the smell of that uh, chestnut oak got to you. It's addicting. It's really strong stuff. <laughs> Something got to me. Yeah. I, I don't think it was a month before I had a sawmill. Oh, wow. And then uh, we bought a little, we bought a manual. It was an LT15 wide. Mm -hmm. Put the power feed on it. Um, that was the first mill we had. And then we uh, we bought a KD150 kiln. We built a little, I don't know, probably 800 board foot kiln upstairs in the shop. And hmm. we did that for, I don't know, maybe about a year. And then I decided that, you know, I could really turn this into a viable business if I invested in some real equipment and started putting more time and effort into it. Um, so, I mean, that was kind of the whole start of it, really. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So how long did you kind of work in parallel before you officially went full-time as Goodwood's Lumber? Well, I'm actually still full-time both, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, isn't that always the way it is? <laughs> I say the I same mean, upstairs, thing to people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right now, you know, upstairs in the shop, there's, you know, the islands going on and tabletops and vanities and all kinds of stuff all right and then uh you know right now we're down here we're all set up for retail and stuff so we're selling lumber there's actually a few guys out there right now nice 
Yeah, I need to I need to come up and visit. There's really no excuse. You're all of about 40 minutes from me. Um, yeah, well, there is an excuse. It's called eight and a half million board feet of lumber outside my office window. <laughs> I was going to say, that's that's the difference there. Yeah. <laughs> I, I tend to not be wanting for lumber. Um, although the true, the true irony in, in my life is like, I couldn't get a slice of catalpa, you know, if you put a gun to my head, like, and that's the stuff that I want. Like I just built a table out of you want the one-off stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You want the you know? weird stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah. I can get cherry and walnut and maple and teak and, you know, the mainstream stuff. Cause that's, that's who I work for is mainstream, you know, commercial lumber company, right. but it, and it's always, it's always the way the grass is always greener somewhere else, you know, <laughs> it's like, Oh, absolutely. Now, I think that's the coolest thing about having a small sawmill too, you know, that right. you, you get, you get the logs that aren't, you know, available in large scale for production, like, you know, like where, where you work. So, you know, mm -hmm. we get the weird stuff, you know, we get box elder and Catalpa, you know, I'm trying to think what else we get. Well, just that's just random woods, you know, every once in a while you get, the, you get a, you know, Osage. I have some like 40 inch wide Osage slabs here. You never see that stuff. Nice. Beautiful. Wow. I'm not sure what, I'm not sure that I could do anything with a 40 inch wide slab of Osage. It's almost too much wow. color, right? It's like, too, it's, they're too big. Right? <laughs> they're like it, too big. You know, I mean, I yeah. could cut that into stuff, but still it's like Osage is like a, it's like an accent lumber. Like you don't build a piece of furniture out of Osage or something. That would just be, I know, I know. you know, it'd be like going back to the eighties with like day glow colors and things. I'm not sure. I mean, it, it, Neon it, colors. Yeah. Right. Right. Reminds me of my ski jacket from the 1980s, like pink and fluorescent <laughs> yellow. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> and a yeah. And I mean, probably. you, know, you need, a, need a crane to move into your house as well. Yeah. Yeah. I've got, I've got three pieces of Osage in my shop right now that I pretty much been milking for about, eight years, <laughs> you know, okay. one little piece gets sawn off for this, you know, like I make yeah. a, like the boom arm for a marking gauge out of it one day. And then actually the, the planing stop, the adjustable height planing stop on my workbench is made out of Osage just because it's okay. so, so unbelievably stiff, you know, I mean, it's bow yes. right? Yep. So it's yeah, like absolutely. the perfect thing to, to hang off the end of the bench and plane against. But yeah, I've, I've got that piece sitting up there and like three or excuse me, two other kind of smaller ones. And I'll just work my way through it slowly but surely. But a big old slab of Osage, I'm not sure what I would do with that. I'm sure yeah, there's a customer you know, somewhere, right? Surprisingly, I mean, they've been here for a while. There's only two mm -hmm. left of the 10 that we got out of it. So they have, uh, I awesome. haven't seen the end results of a bunch of them, but most of it's gone, so. Right on. So you know, at the end of the day, that's, that's, that's what's important here. Well, and it's what's interesting is um, I am sitting next to, my, my glass is resting on a coaster on top of a drop leaf walnut table. Um, and I bought this wood from you because it was air dried. Um, I specifically wanted some air dried material because I knew I was going to be doing, um, I was going to be doing it all by hand. So it was a 28 inch, uh, slab, uh, that I resawed, uh, and turned into a drop leaf table. It's actually part of a, my hand tool school semester four product offering. And uh, okay. it's just kind of a funny coincidence. I, I'm, I happen to be sitting next to this table right now. But That's pretty cool. This was, and this was probably like right after you got your mill. That's my memory is that you had just got the mill and you had only sawn a couple of things. Um, so I don't even think Good Woods was a name yet. Um, it was still. Uh, it wasn't. We, we were running under the uh, Works Construction name for probably a year or two or three. Okay. Yeah. Actually, it might have been even longer than that. Right. So yeah, we really wanted to build inventory and stuff before we even opened to the public. You know, I didn't want to, 
I didn't want to jump the gun and, you know, have six boards laying around and guys come in and be like, okay, this is cool, but this is all you have. Right. Yeah. Where's the yeah. rest? We're, that, you only get one chance at a first impression, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Very true. So I'm curious today, because um, it was funny, because I remember, like, I knew Goodwoods had become a thing. I was like, okay, cool. It sounds like, because um, when I when I last when I last thought of Josh, it was like, okay, he's kind of doing this part time. He's doing some other woodworking stuff. Like that's good to know. Like filed away in the in the mental Rolodex is here's the place to get lumber. You know, I can go to the Frank Thomas sawmill and get my like typical domestics. But if I want some other stuff, I can go up to up to Pennsylvania. You know. Um, and then like one day somebody said, hey, have you heard of this place called Goodwoods Lumber? And I, I looked it up and I was like, holy crap. Like, I know this person. <laughs> I, this, wow, the, the operation has grown up. And th that was probably like six or seven years later. So you were really well established. And I think you would just started bringing in exotics. Um, maybe not. But um, I'd, I'd kind of been following the business and it's been really interesting to see because now you're you're kind of big time. You've got an exotic business. You've got, you know, um, how many, how many mills are you running now? Well, actually, let's just take this up. Let's top the opportunity to talk about what does your operation look like today? Uh, so today I'm actually short a bandsaw mill. So wait on my new wood miser to come in. I <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, sold it to a, uh, a really good buddy of mine, Will down at uh, Sandtown, Millworks in Baltimore. Great guy. He bought the mill right. from me in, I want to say beginning of March, um, he waited for a long time, but yeah, I'm still 18 months out on my new, on my new super. So, um, that's the way things go we have at days. least a nice backlog of stuff for, for the kilns to keep everything operational in the meantime. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, right now we're running, uh, we'll be running LT 40 super wide. It's coming in. Uh, we have a Lucas mill, the dedicated slapper mill for all the big stuff. Right. Um, you know, two eye dry standard kilns, uh, big slab flattener in here obviously the big battleship that just came in yeah you guys have got to go to uh to josh's instagram uh goodwoods lumber llc is the is the id um he posted this picture and i mean i love the patina on it like in one image it's very very green and the other image it's very very gray i don't know if there's a lighting issue there but this is like this is vintage machinery at its finest this is what a 30 inch 30 inch planer uh, yep, 30-inch um, top and bottom head. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I have one of those. Um, we have, we actually have two of those um, at the at the mill right now, and they they blow my mind, the whole top and bottom idea. Rough lumber goes in, and out comes S2S. You know, it's just incredible. And and the, yeah, the yeah, bite uh, these things can take is disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> well, 30-horsepower cutters will help, you know. It's yeah. not a uh, – I know some of them have 30, 40, 50 horsepowers on them. Uh, yeah. I've been spending all day today trying to get this thing calibrated to get the bed roller set up right. Yeah, I bet the that's electrician fine. comes next week to hook it up. So I was going to say, get ahead of the curve if I can. I'd be really curious to see if, like, do the lights in Shrewsbury dim when you turn it on? Like <laughs> the whole town <laughs> just for a second, kind of right? Auxiliary power at the nuclear power plant. Right. Yeah. Peach bottom turns it up a little bit, and you're all fine again. Yeah, exactly. Good to go. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it, I it's love 125 amp. It's a 125 wow. amp circuit to it. That's fantastic. It was, uh, it was built in 70, 73, so it's 50 years old. Nice. So um, what kind of services do you offer then? Just do you, do you, have, do you have a molder or is it just planer? Um, what kind of millwork services do you offer? 
So, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously people come in here and buy retail lumber and slabs and stuff from mm -hmm. us. Um, but we do offer – we have a straight line rip saw in here. Uh, we just added this double-sided planer to help with the S4S material or, you know, S2S. Uh, we can flatten slabs for people on the slab flattener. Uh, we can even, you know, build, fully build custom tables and all that stuff from our stock. If you come in and pick something you like, we can take nice. it from from raw good to finished product. So That's fantastic. So then where where's the wood coming from? Where are you sourcing your logs and such that you're sawing? So I actually work with probably about pretty close to about six to eight different tree services. Okay. Um, everything's local. Everything's within like 30 miles of our shop, which is pretty cool. I just, we either buy the, you know, we either buy a full, full um, triaxle truck at a time or, you know, if a guy calls me and said, hey, you know, I got a 40 inch walnut. Yeah, I'll, we'll buy that or. You know, mm -hmm. I got a bunch of cherry. Yeah, we'll take the cherry, white oak. So I don't really work with any loggers at this point. It's pretty much uh, one logger from time to time, but it's it's pretty much all stuff that has to come down or is dead or dying. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty much all um, what we would still kind of, I think, generically call urban logged at this point, even though I would yeah, hardly call Lancaster hard. County urban or York County urban. Um, <laughs> it's not yes. exactly built up. But, but it's it still is, yeah, considered urban logging, sure. Yeah, tree, you know, front yard trees, yard trees, things like that. Um, yes. It is interesting. I was having a conversation with someone in a similar situation to yourself who was um, asking about, like, dealing with loggers. And he's like, I can't seem to find any. And those that I do find, like, don't want anything to do with me. And it does seem to me that um, this little um, kind of grassroots industry that's grown up, the the, the bandsaw, bandsaw mill owner, um, whether it's mobile or fixed or whatever, that industry has kind of locked arms with the arborists and the tree removal guys. And the official logging companies have just gone over to like the commercial side, like my company. Um, yeah. And, or, or they maybe have a sawmill, like they have um, the, the logging company or the, the logging side of things has a mill somewhere else. Um, right, and they're, they feed themselves with. yeah, exactly. They're feeding themselves for it. So in many instances, they're logging. I mean, logging in general, you don't just randomly go out and log stuff. Like it just doesn't work that way anymore. Right. Everything I mean, has a concession. Like yeah. Right. Exactly. And if say it's private land and you call on a logging company, they will come in and do an estimate and all that stuff. And, and then that material is usually, uh, there's, there's a, either the, the landowner has it or they're selling it off to the logging company. Um, but ultimately, logging and loggers in general, it's not—it's almost as if their material isn't for sale because it's already spoken for. So I think that's True. kind of an interesting point to make um, in this this new grassroots thing that gets me so excited that I, I've talked to so many people about on this show is we're taking advantage of the stuff that currently really would just like go in a landfill or get ground up for mulch. Right, or turn into mulch or something. Absolutely. Yeah. So that, that's and particularly I, exciting. I mean, there, there, there are, other, you know, there are definitely downfalls to the urban trees. You know, you have the, obviously the nails, the bolts, you know, right. you get a lot more of that stuff in the, in the, uh, in the lumber and the slabs, but you know, it's, it's, it's actually fairly rare. We don't hit a ton of metal. Well, would um, you say that that risk is offset just with the advent of the, not the advent, the bandsaw mill has been around since the 1500s, but I mean, bandsaw blades are cheap, frankly. I mean, the yeah. big issue before you know, was those cirque blades were a right. bloody you, fortune. You, out of exactly. you know, you could go bankrupt if you tore up one of those blades. And now, like, 
I mean, we're buying them. I mean, we've got some carbide ones that are expensive. There's no doubt, but expensive is a couple hundred bucks. Um, right. Exactly. We've got yeah. a, and in you know, big scheme of things, it's not that. It's you know, it is what it is. It's kind of yeah. just a the cost of doing business. We always say. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. It's probably more of an inconvenience that slows things down rather than, you know, oh, damn, I blew a blade because they they really are almost a dime a dozen um, these days. They are. So, they are. Um, and, and who knows with the whole, like everybody's so excited about epoxy tables, maybe the whole idea of having buckshot in your table will be a thing now, you know, <laughs> half a chain, you know, in, in your table. That's the new, the new, yep. uh, 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 style, I suppose. The, so, I think the one that's the worst is the, uh, the chainsaw blades can get a little, little pricey on the Lucas mills. If you're, if you hmm. keep hitting like a lot of metal and stuff like that. But I right. mean, you know, when I first started, I, I wasn't buying logs. I was basically going out and, you know, finding free stuff. Right. And I did that for about two months. And, it, you know, it was riddled with nails or rod. And I'm like, the only way to get good logs is to buy them from the arborists, you know, start start creating relationships with guys so they know what you're looking for. You know, you're, you're top of their list when they make those calls. Hey, I got a big tree. You want it? Yeah, I'll take that maple or, or walnut or whatever it may be. Right. So, and I think that's that's the conversation that I've had with a lot of people. And, you know, it kind of also in a good way, like I'm all about like the democratization of this thing. I love the the fact that the, the Woodmiser, just the brand has made this so accessible. I mean, Woodmisers are cheaper than a car. Um, just about anybody. And they offer financing, for God's sake. I mean, just about anybody right. can get into a Woodmiser these days. I mean, certainly there's very, very expensive ones, but there's also very affordable ones. And I'm all about that, you know, the, the average woodworker being able to harvest and, 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 you know, really curate from stump all the way to finished project. But I do think that there, there is, it's kind of nice, this kind of separation from the hobbyists to the professionals that we're seeing. You have to build those relationships with the tree guys. Like the, sure, absolutely. the, the little woodworker guy that's just doing it, like you could maybe call a tree guy and maybe get some help there, but Ultimately, what they're looking for, what the tree people are looking for, is the long-standing relationship, so that they know who they can call when they've got a log. Um, certainly, it's a revenue stream for them. But the the thing that I've heard is, someone will reach out to a tree company and say, "Hey, I've got a mill. I'm looking for logs." And it'd be like the first conversation is, "This is fantastic. Great. You know, here's three logs." And then like the next two days later, they're like, we've got three more logs. And this little guy's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I haven't even like, like fired up the mill. I haven't even touched these ones yet. Yeah. You know, I still have three logs here. I don't have a log yard. So then the tree guy is like, oh, okay, well, you're not somebody that can help me. And they go another direction. So then, right. you know, exactly. maybe this woodworker calls them six months later and they're kind of like, well, yeah, but ultimately it's, you know, they're looking for a long standing relationship or they're looking for like a book of like a Rolodex that they can, I'm dating myself using that word, I realize, but you know, they're looking for that, <laughs> that contact book. I say that because my domestic buyer actually has a Rolodex. <laughs> it's, he pulls it out of <laughs> yep. his briefcase and flips through it. It's very funny, but That's funny. Um, you know, I, I think that the more you can like build that relationship with these, with these, I almost said loggers, <laughs> tree companies, they start to know like what's valuable because oh sure it, you, it is interesting know, it's, it's they don't honestly know pretty, sometimes no and they don't I, I i mean i've met with a lot of guys you know who have no idea what you know a, a big walnut tree is worth or, or valued at and um you know and i'm always very fair and i'm like you know this is what you know from based on doyle scale this is what stumpage price is going for right now and you mm -hmm. know based on grade and i you know 
you know, I definitely look for defects and stuff. I'm not going to spend, you know, pay four dollars a board foot for a walnut log that has nails and rot all through it. But, um, yeah, I mean, I treat those guys fair, and they treat me fair, and they call me and they hold stuff for me now, which is great. You know, I, we got a big job coming up. We're gonna we'll set these walnuts aside. We'll bring them over in a week or so. Um, the one problem with dealing with so many guys is I tend to buy a lot of stuff just to keep the relationships going. Yeah, sure. You know, like uh guy has a walnut, you know, I'm, I'm inundated with walnut right now. I have probably, I don't know, 50,000 board feet of walnut that needs cut. Wow. And, uh, you know, I keep getting the calls. The guys are like, Hey, I got a 36 inch walnut. Are you interested? I'm like, yeah, I'll buy it from you. <laughs> you know, I guess it's a first world problem to have, but yeah, sure. Well, um, here's an interesting kind of tangential question. Any idea why there's so many walnuts coming down? Are we seeing thousand um, canker issues or, or what's, why? Why all of a sudden there's sure. so many walnut logs? That's, I, you know what? That's a good question, Shane. I don't, I don't know. That's it, concerning. It's, it's funny how it phases. Yeah. It phases in, especially dealing with like, uh, with the tree guys and the arborists, you know, it'll be like, okay, so we're starting to get a little limited on walnut. I'll start thinking to myself, we need to go look for walnut. And right. all of a sudden everybody will call me for walnut and I'll get inundated with walnut for, for months. And then, you know, I won't see it again for three months. Right. And it'll be all maple or all ash or, you know, it, it's, you know, I guess the universe is working in my favor that way. But well, and I'm glad you said that because that's exactly what I was thinking. I feel like it was just yesterday we were saying like nobody has any walnut logs. It wasn't obviously, but, you know, I, I feel like I've had this conversation very recently that walnut was difficult to find. And now you're not the first person I've talked to who said I've got more walnut logs. I don't know what to do with. So it, it's a little alarming when you start thinking, like, ecolo ecologically speaking, like, why all oh, of sure. a sudden are a bunch of walnut logs? Because they're not coming down in, like, um, commercial concessions. Um, those those spikes you see in the market, that's the one thing you can say about traditional logging is it's, it's very kind of um, level. Like, everybody right. knows what's coming down where, and they can even tell you exactly what tree will be available and when it's going in the kiln and... You know, that type of thing is very well planned out, and we count on that from a buying perspective. So this sure, sure. Um, Wild West thing that, that you can proudly be a part of right now um, <laughs> is, is a, little bit, yeah, a little bit more feast and famine. Um, so when I start to hear, wow, we suddenly have a whole lot of walnut logs, or unfortunately what I've been hearing a lot lately is I got a whole bunch of ash logs because they're coming down, the cities are taking them down, like they're running scared of the emerald ash borer, so they're taking the ash trees down as fast as they oh, can. Is that why, are they worried about the, the, the spread? So they're, yeah, they're well, you know, a lot, there's a lot of, there's a lot of misinformation, but also just kind of fear and paranoia. Like Emerald Ash Borer was reported in one end of the city. So the city just like raises them like, okay, we're starting over. Right. You know, and in yep. some ways that would be good if they planted the right stuff in replacement. But I think a lot of times they're planting for like fast growth and not really thinking about the urban canopy as much. Hopefully that's, that's our next step in, in this, this, this thing that we're a part of right now, this, this urban logging thing, let's get them planting the right trees again. But yeah, you're hearing, yeah, you something. see this like massive, suddenly there's this huge influx of logs of a certain species in, in a small regional area. And you kind of have to wonder what just caused that. Sometimes it's construction, right? Sometimes they just sure, sure. putting in a new strip mall or something like that, or, I know they just leveled a huge plot of land in my neighborhood, um, and I I think they're going to put an athletic club there. I don't really know at this point, but it's this okay. huge, huge land, and I have no idea what happened to all those logs, and I 
perish the thought they're probably mulch by now. But yeah, that type of thing happens a lot. Um, yeah, just before, mean, before we get too far away, I want to hit on something. The listeners, you, you'd mentioned something using Doyle's uh, rule. Uh, for those that don't know, that's the way to calculate like the kind of approximate amount of board feet you're going to have a log. Um, I can't, I don't know the calculation. I have a, I have an app for that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, or I have a, I have a slide rule for that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So basically in order to estimate kind of how much this log is worth, we use this calculator to determine here's how much the board feet kind of factors in waste and things like that. And it's, it's a little bit of a fuzzy number, but it gives you kind of a good working market price on logs for, for those that are not aware. Um, just wanted to make sure <laughs> we didn't just scam over that real quick. So, um, yeah, it actually, this, this, it's always a little higher too. You actually get a little bit more, more yield with a band mill blade than your Doyle gives you. No. Yeah. I could see that. That actually makes less sense. Less Yeah. Well, you know, that, that's the little, that's called the margin. <laughs> you just Absolutely. keep, you keep that surplus to yourself and that's what, Absolutely. <laughs> that's the little extra margin right there. That's, that's just business. So I think, um, Again, we've got, uh, you mentioned earlier, kind of the variety of species you're seeing. Certainly we've got a lot of walnut. I imagine you see a fair amount of oak. What's some of the other stuff that, well, A, that you have in stock right now, or just some of the species that you've run across that you've sawn? Uh, you know, obviously black walnut, uh, English walnut, uh, American elm, some mm -hmm. Siberian elm, big poplar, tulip poplars, mm -hmm. ash, uh, lots of maple. Lots of curly maple, a lot of uh, ambrosia maple. I'm trying to look around the shop if I can think about all this stuff. Osage, Catalpa, uh, cherry, yeah, as far as domestics go. Hmm. Um, now, we have, have you have you done any work with a Siberian elm, personally? Uh, other than flattening it, no, I have not. Hmm. I'm wondering how that works. I would assume it's similar to just American elm or red elm or something, but uh, I'm it's, seeing... I, I think it, very similar, yeah. I would imagine. I mean, technically, the properties look the same, but I, I ask that because I, I'm seeing it pop up everywhere. That seems to be one of those fast-growing trees that the cities are liking to plant. Um, yeah. I, I was. I recently drove um, out to Colorado to visit my mom, and I took this road trip all the way across the country, and Siberian elm is everywhere. Like everywhere I looked, and it's one of those things when you start looking for it, you see it everywhere. But it truly sure. was everywhere. From, you know, Pittsburgh to Kansas City to, you know, Greenberg, Kansas to Colorado Springs. I saw them everywhere. They were in the parking lot, you know, of like every hotel I stayed at all the way across the country. <laughs> um, so I'm fairly large mostly, or like New Grove? Um, a little bit of both. Like I was in okay. Dodge City, Kansas, and they were like probably just saplings. Um, but then Colorado Springs, it was over by Garden of the Gods. And these were... These were mature Siberian elm, but they were planted around like a visitor center parking lot. So they were obviously, okay. you know, well, it's Siberian elm. Obviously, it's not native, but it's just interesting. And the woodworker in me is thinking, hmm, could this be like, I should get my hands on this stuff. I wonder, because I love elm. Um, I actually just oh, put a drawer with beautiful. elm. Um, kind of curious. I'll have to look into it a little bit more. So you have some in the shop? Oh, we do, yeah. Okay. It's like all the, uh, <laughs> the London plane trees, too, in the sycamores. 
Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, I mean, they're all over the road. They, they all up here. They're playing alongside the road everywhere, and they're, they're monsters. I mean, they're 40, 50 inch diameter trees. Yeah, I think the sycamore, the American sycamore, I think could be called like a builder grade tree. It's like in, it's like the, the handful of trees that builders know. Plant that there, and it's going to do well. Um, I've got right. one in my backyard that has to be. See, the house was built in '66. My neighbor bought the house next door in 66 and said they bought the house because of the mature sycamore in the backyard. So if okay. it was mature in 66, I mean, it is a beast. Yeah. I love this oh, tree. Yeah. Um, Five foot the, diameter trees, yeah. Yeah, the leaves kind of suck, but that's all right. Because <laughs> it's the, they're uh, enormous. They're like the size of my I love, head. I, love, I think sycamore is gorgeous. I mean, the, the ray yeah. fleck you can get in there, or not the ray fleck, but like the uh, almost that lacewood effect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, quarter sawn sections. Nice density. Um, how yep. do you like uh, drying it? Because um, I'm segueing subtly into the dry kilns. Um, any experience with the vacuum kilns and sycamore? Because it's a tough wood to dry. It is. Um, the, a couple of years ago, we dried a batch. And, uh, and I'm not quite sure that we had let it air dry long enough. Mm-hmm. We had a little bit of comp- uh, compression, you know, yeah. some... I guess it, not necessarily honeycombing, but some, some cellular collapse, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Very minimal though. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, when I first started running these kilns, a lot of it was a, was a guesstimation. It was like, all right, so what do we do here? How do we run this? What temperature, what swings, what's the schedule in this thing? Right. There was really no real good literature out there at the time when we first got into them as far as how to run them. So we screwed sure. a few things up in the, in the beginning for sure. Right. Um, yeah. I think that's part of it, part of doing business, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's part of that learning curve, obviously. But no, I mean, now, you know, we typically let, if it's a large slab, we cut everything from 10 to 12 quarter for the most part. Right. It's that nice, happy range where, you know, any of that cupping or twisting is easily leveled out and you can still yield a nice thick tabletop or or countertop or whatever. You know, if we let something air dry for a year, we can turn around the kiln in a month. Right. Yeah, I, I think like that's something very, very little that's the the secret sauce that a lot of people don't realize is air drying. Like people say, well, do you have air dried or kiln dried? Well, we all have air dried. Like that's sure. that's a step in the process. It's not a product. It's a step. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, certainly exactly. if you want to buy it while it's air dried, sure. But, you know, that's everybody has to do some air drying. There are some species certainly that and some kilns certainly uh, that, you know, sop and wet. Um, you know, the holly, for instance, unless you want it to stain, you really want to put it in the kiln right away. Um, other uh, large commercial entities can take, you know, sop and wet logs and go straight into the kiln. And they actually rely upon that excess moisture to kind of balance out the, dehum- the dehumidification kiln. But in this instance, you're running, you said you have two eye dries, right? Yes. Okay. And they're what? Uh, what's the capacity? 2,500 board feet? 3,000? They're, uh, they're technically 2,000 board feet. Okay. Okay. Um, That's close. Y- you know, the problem with slabs is you get a lot of uh, dead space in there. Right. So glad you so, said that because that's my first question. Um, yeah. So um, this this is this is me. Uh, forget about the show. I'm just interested right now. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> I, I live I live in a commercial dehumidification kiln world. I've got um, seven, well, nine now uh, commercial dehumidification kilns. And 
loading them like we have we have three guys that specialize in it one of them has been doing it for 40 years and like don't ever challenge this guy to a game of tetris because he will kick your butt <laughs> like loading a dehumidification kiln is about tetris like you want no dead space and if you have yes. dead space expect that the wood around that dead space adjacent to it will have problems like just write that off um it's just not something that you want to have it's too hard to control air is too good of an insulator. Uh, that's why we have double pane windows. Um, and when you've got dead air, it causes real problems in keeping uh, constant temperature. So if you are, well, I just looked at your, your kiln dried page on your website and you actually have pricing in here for partial loads. So are you truly running a partial load or are you filling every kiln and running it? We, we always fill the kilns. Okay. Um, you know, if you have like again big air, dead airspace, you don't have proper air velocity between the stickered piles, the slabs, the lumber, whatever it may be. Okay. So yeah, I mean, if somebody brings me, you know, five hundred board feet of of you know ten foot eight quarter material, we're going to infill with air dried stuff on top of it. And then now, we'll, we'll are you mixing? Will you mix species? Yeah. I mix species all the time. I have had okay. zero issues with mixing. Interesting. Okay, let me rephrase that, Shannon. <laughs> <laughs> Knock on wood <Okay>. quick. <laughs> okay, so when we, when we originally started, we would mix everything, right? And that was kind of the eye dry claim to fame, mix species, just press start, all this. Mm -hmm. I typically am only mixing, uh, oaks are typically always dried as they're by themselves. Mm -hmm. Red oak, white oak, whatever it may be. Um, you know, they're a hard species to dry. They take an extended drain or extended drying time. A lot of chemical reaction going on too. That's the real yes, issue with a lot oak. of tannic acids and stuff in there, tannic compounds. Um, but I have dried a, dried a lot of white oak and walnut together. Okay. With great results. Um, I kind of run up the same same uh, you know long instead of drain cycles, high humidity at first, and mm -hmm. they've come out clean as can be. And walnut and you know walnut whatever notorious for honeycombing. So yeah, right. But, you know, but one wonders, I mean, just, just scientifically speaking, I mean, they are both, I mean, the, the juglinus, whatever, however the hell we pronounce that uh, yeah. um, toxin that they say kills tomatoes, which uh, recently, I, I don't know that that, I think that's been disproven, by the way. <laughs> they, I, oh, I, still wouldn't, I still wouldn't uh, line your horse beds and your hamster bed with uh, walnut shavings. But uh, from what I understand that uh, a liliopathic nature of juggling, juggliness, whatever the heck that, that hormone is. Yeah, I, I is know not, I can never remember it either. Yeah, not nearly as, as um, toxic as one thought uh, in kind of the mixture in the parts per million. Um, like all of the tests around that have been like more concentrated versions in a lab. But in real world, it's like heavily dilute. Anyway, going off on a tangent here, it's still, okay. it's a, it's a reactive wood very much like the oaks and white oak for that matter. So it's possible that they just kind of cancel each other out. Um, yeah. Also, I mean, white oak being, I mean, yes, it's ring porous, but it's a pretty dense ring porous and all that tylos and everything. I don't know. I feel that in a lot of ways they might be kind of similar. It's interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, like we always, I mix it all the time and like, but that, those are the two species that I will mix again. Oaks are, Oaks are usually separated. If we have a full load of white oak, you know, we'll, we'll fill the kiln with just white oak, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do separate thicknesses all, always. You know, I'll drive four and five quarter together, typically six and eight, right. uh, you know, 10 through 12, just because of the drying schedules on them. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Longer to dry. Um, but, you know, if we have a shorter baffle, say we have, you know, 15, 
maple slabs or ash slabs that are going to kill you know i try to keep the lengths pretty close you know nine to ten ten to eleven footers and then we'll we just put um the foam board and ba- baffle the back side of the kilns off okay so we don't sure. have the dead space and and so we're clear we're talking pure vacuum kilns this is not an rf kiln correct there's no radio frequency yes, here pure vacuum kilns. okay yes so the the idea is with the the lower air content the boiling point um, drops as well so you can go at a lower heat correct? correct correct so what kind of heat are you running or is this a trade secret you can tell me but have to kill me no no there's plenty of forms out there you can get all, all the information you wanted um it, it depends you know so like white oak i actually just first time i have ever tried it i dried four quarter quarter saw on white oak from dead green. I was like, I have to try it. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I've had these kilns for years. I have to try it. Sure. So I ran what I do. I did like a 90 degree cycle on it. It took 18 days to get it fully dry, but I ran 90 and then finished out at 120 and then did a sterilization. And, um, um, what's that sterilization cycle at 165 for two days at the end. Okay. And it turned out beautiful straight as can be. Very, very, very little stress in the wood. Interesting. 18 days. But typically, yeah, 18 days. Four Damn. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I was, uh, you know, they say a week per inch, which is, white yeah. oak is definitely a harder species to dry. So, yeah, I ran it yeah. 18 days and it came out. It, it came out from 7 8% almost all through it. I checked a bunch of readings and it was flat. I mean, truly flat. White as can be as the day came off the saw. Beautiful. So I, I, I might attempt to do more of that. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it is one of those species. I was saying sometimes we go, you know, as green as sopping wet can be. That is one of the species that we will get in the kiln right away because um, it, it, it can handle that. But we're talking. And it's more controllable. I mean, air drying is very, very hard to control. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I actually had a question on a, a couple shows ago about this and it was like, you know, should we have air dried a little bit longer? And it's like air drying can be good because it's it's mild. Right. But you also have no control over it. You're relying on Mother Nature to do it. So right. sometimes we'll load a kiln and just not turn it on, you know, and just let it air dry in the kiln because at least then it's yeah. closed and we can control the fans. And we kind of kind of sort of take Mother Nature out of the equation here and, and have some control over that slow period. And then we'll warm up the kiln over the course of several days. But, you know, a white oak or a red oak, dead green to fully dry and ready to sell is six to eight weeks. Like, I mean, oh, yeah. yeah. Again, depending upon thickness, but typical, you know, more common, not the heavy thickness stuff. But yeah, 18 days. That's impressive. That's really cool. So no, explain I, was, to I, was, me. Uh, I was very happy with that, that load result because it was a it was a big gamble. I was like, you know, I'm either yeah. going to throw away a thousand board feet of quarter saw and white oak. Yeah. Or I'm going to have a thousand board feet of beautiful quarter saw and white oak. And and your what you're calling your sterilization cycle. What's the point of that? Uh, basically kill any any kind of bugs or critters. Okay, inside that's what I figured. 160 degrees yeah. and you're holding it for yep. a couple of days there. Yeah, yeah. That's what I, so I thought. So we just hit 165 on the sterilization. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think of the name of the, when you uh, bring moisture back into. We'll, we'll close off the drain schedules. So any moisture that's in there can re conditioning cycle. It's basically yeah, a, a sterilization and conditioning cycle at the end of it too. So you're you're reversing the case hardening essentially. It's the last step. Correct. Correct. So which is in, very in, limited in those kilns anyway. 
Yeah, I would think so with that. Yeah. Well, and that's the interesting thing. So really, we are talking about the exact same process that I use. It's just you have low oxygen content. So yep. it, explain to me the, the party line here. Like if you read the propaganda from the eye dry people or any of these vacuum kilns, they're always saying that the lower heat um, results in a more stable wood. Now I get the more kind of the different color, the little bit less bleached out. Um, I get that from a lower heat, but explain to me how the lower heat translates to stable. Cause and I will tell you the party line on my side of the fence is the higher heat now slower warm-up time and all that but the higher heat will help to set some of the extractives and some of the other like the hemocellulose right. and some of the sugars and essentially harden the cell walls um, and that makes it just less resistant to take on moisture and more apt to shed moisture making a harder but more quote stable board so I'm, okay don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not debating this. Um, I would just love to hear kind of your understanding of this. How does the lower heat yield a more stable board? Uh, I don't have a good answer for that, Shane. <laughs> All right. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> I really don't. Um, I, I think the whole, in, for my belief from iDry, I think the whole concept is, you know, you're not stressing the lumber with a higher heat. But again, mm -hmm. like you said, I think it's that's debatable on both sides of the spectrum because, right. you know, with exactly what you just said. Um, I think, you know, so under vacuum, you have a lower boiling point of water. So, I, you know, right. it's like 175 or 180 degrees boiling point instead of 212. So in, in a vacuum, you're actually working, you're pulling moisture from core to case too, from instead of case to core, like you would in a traditional DH. Okay. Um, as far as the temperature concerns go, I, I'm I I don't have a good answer. I don't. Well, and, and I wonder. Like, I just quickly pulled up the iDry website. I was looking for their exact verbiage, and they don't actually say the reduced heat produces more stable. They're very keen in every instance to say that it's reduced heat and moisture draw. The difference in the moisture draw is what gives it stable. So I could be focusing yeah. on the heat um, because that's one of the things that. You know, especially on, on some of the more difficult woods, um, especially the high extractive stuff, the high sap stuff, um, you want to you you take it higher to really set that or sure. you get weeping you issues. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the heat has always been like the, the secret sauce in this whole thing. So once we start reducing heat, like alarm bells start going off in my traditional old school kiln method. Um, now, I should say that I have I have quite a bit of hands on experience with vacuum kiln dried wood and it's legit. Like it's stable. So part of me quite doesn't get it. Like it shouldn't be this way because it's such lower. I think lower. that's my answer. I just don't quite get it. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. It works. Yeah. I don't have any exactly, claims. Yeah. Like stop looking behind the curtain. Oh, so I, I, I wonder, and this is just the, the science geek in me. I do think it's the stress. Like it, there is less stress. Um, so there's less tension built up during the drying and therefore less tension that has to be restrained by setting things. Um, sure, I, sure. I think you're onto something too about how the draw happens core to case and uh, case to core. You know, and one of the, I think, so one of the big things about the eye dryers too is you can actually set your drain schedules. So, uh -huh. you know, a typical eye dry, you know, if you're running towards the end of a schedule, you'll, you'll hit like a 24 hour drain schedule. So the, the, all the moisture in the wood is, only condensing inside and creating a you know a humid bath for that wood to sit in which you know right. keeps that case 
you know, conditioned throughout the whole entire drying cycle. Right. While wicking moisture out of it. Um, you know, so a lot of times if we have something that's wetter, especially with like large 10, 12 quarter slabs, we'll run an extended drain cycle for, you know, 48 hours. So the kiln will just continually build up moisture inside for two days and then it'll drain for 15 minutes and then fire the vacuum back up and, you know, and start that process all over again until we get down to a, you know, below that FSP or, you know, 20, 25% or so. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we can start and then we can start changing that drain schedule to say 36 hours, you right. know, run that for three, four, five days to a week. Um, and then until we get down to, you know, typically around 15, 18 percent, I feel pretty comfortable with hammering it a little bit harder. Right. Yeah. Generally, at that point, it's it's all bound, heavily cell bound water and hemocellulose and hydroxide compounds and things like that. Exactly. And, so you've got to put some BTUs into it to get the yeah. uh, get that excess yeah. water out of it. Yeah, but then you're also not really having to worry about honeycombing or cell collapse at that point because what's holding that stuff up is now gone. If you were going to get exactly. cell collapse, you would have already had it at that point. So you can, yeah, heavy handed's a little bit, uh, it's a good way to put it. That's interesting. Yeah, we'll, we'll do the same theory too, the same technique on. So, you know, say I have something that's a thick slab that's been air drying for, you know, 12, 14, 16 months. Um, you know, that thing's probably down to the core. It probably It's probably 18% or so, roughly, give or take. Mm -hmm. But we'll fire the kiln up, and I'll run like three days. I'll fire it up. I'll put a low-power setting on there, so it's a gradual increase. But, you know, I'll set that temperature for 125 or 130 degrees with an extended drain cycle. So all that moisture in there is almost reconditioning the case right. and opening those cells back up to allow that core moisture to pull out because, you know, if things get a little case hard, it's harder to pull moisture out of them. Yeah, sure. So well, I, I, that, I that also, that's a, a low stress way on the, on the wood. So again, that draw moisture, you're actually, you're, you're killing two birds with one stone. You're pulling moisture out of the core, but you're using that moisture to recondition and prevent the case hardening, which is correct. Kind of cool when you think about it, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, no, I, I love it. I do. I love the kilns. I mean, like you said, there's a little bit of propaganda behind them as far as, you know, schedules and stuff. But uh, all in all, they're amazing. They, they work great. They do yeah. exactly what they're supposed to do. No, great I'm, company. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a believer. 18 days, you had me there. <laughs> That's phenomenal. Yeah, That's no, cool I, was, uh, I was pretty impressed myself. <laughs> right on. So let's let's shift gears to an entirely different topic here. You started bringing in exotics. You started importing exotics, or you're not importing them directly, but you're buying from an importer, correct? Yes, correct. So um, how did that happen, and how long have you been doing that? So I've been doing this about about a year and a half now. Um, you know, I just started looking out. Trying to be a, a bigger player in the game, I guess. So mm -hmm. that big draw would be to have some things that, you know, a lot of these other guys with these local sawmills don't have or, or, you know, don't have the ability to get. So I started looking around to try to expand that side of the business. Um, bought from a few companies around the country. Um, and then I started working very closely with a uh, with an importer. I won't name names. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't ask you to. <laughs> Trade but, secrets, um, people. Yeah. Absolutely. But yeah, we've, uh, we've, we've become very, very close and, uh, we work directly. He travels the world and, you know, goes to the mills and, uh, buys the logs and imports them. And a lot of stuff comes in unkiln dried, so we'll air dry it and then, and then vacuum kiln dry everything. Um, but the, the cool part about what we're doing here with the exotic stuff is we're trying to introduce 
lesser known species of exotics into the mix. Um, okay. So a lot of these mills over there, you know, they have an abundance of certain logs that were either logged or were taken down in lieu of, you know, the cataloche or, you know, the high value trees. So basically we're, bu we're buying a lot of these logs up and having them milled and, and importing them that way um, and try to create a, a heavier market for those things, which in turn actually helps the mills and, you know, keeps those communities more sustainable over there as well. Right. So it's kind of like a little bit of a humanitarian effort at the same time, which is which is pretty cool. No, I agree. I, th this is this is again kind of like this whole urban logging thing. I I firmly believe, and I'm literally shooting my industry in the in the foot. Well, not literally, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> this I think is the future of of the lumber trade. Um, as more and more um, regulations come to bear, as frankly more companies are forced out of business because the, the level of regulation has gotten so hard. Um, it's, it's really hard to manage this stuff, this grassroots side of thing and our ability to, to turn to tertiary and quadrary exotic species. You know, I'm looking at your shop right now. You've got Guancas, um, Hormigo. There's one, there's a one probably people have never heard of Grenadillo. Yep. I would call that, well, it's still kind of a tertiary species. I mean, I personally have quite a bit of experience with it, but I'm, Zircote is one of them that I think has gained a little bit, but five years ago, totally, totally a tertiary species. I'd call it a well, we have, secondary. We now. have a ton of Zircote right now. <laughs> really? God, that, oh, people, we, if you I, haven't worked I, with it, it's a cool wood. Just super, oh, super cool looking wood. Um, yeah. Yeah. You, you a little have pricey, to, but very, very nice. Well, yeah, it's pricey, but you absolutely have to incorporate the sapwood. If you cut the sapwood off, you're dead to me. Like, because it's just the contrast is so stark it's just amazing yep but it, yeah. it is interesting because you're not you're not the only one you're the only one i know in pennsylvania frankly um because you not far from you is a certain company that does a lot of exotic hardwoods um and they saw a lot of exotic hardwoods and it's it's mainstream exotics um but you know some of these other species that as part of a concession a healthy concession you can't just go in and cut down you know, all the Paduk. You've got to cut Correct. all the stuff around it. Um, well, especially now, because Paduk site is listed. You definitely can't go cut yeah. down all the Paduk. Yeah. But, you know, the the more common names, the African mahoganies and the Sapiles and the Udiles and those primary exotics, um, you have to cut down three, four, five times as many of these other species to get your yield of Sapili. Otherwise, you end up like, well, you denude the forest of a certain species, but you also just to do shelter wood and seed tree type silviculture, you have to cut down these other mature trees. Some of it also just, you have to cut them down as far as access, you know, so that you're, you're yeah, putting in logging roads and things like that. This wood does not just get burned, but normally it stays in country. Like the homes in Cameroon are built out of this species you've never heard of. Um, oh, and then, absolutely. Um, and, and, and of course, there's this huge also reclaim market of these tertiary exotics where same reason that we have reclaimed here, you know, a building gets, you know, falls down or something like that, or a barn falls down and they take the wood from it. The same thing happens in these other countries uh, all over the world. And a lot of these species can be uh, fresh log, but they also can be reclaimed and you, you've never heard of them. But at the same time, like, you know, you grab yourself a, a, a piece of um, machiche or um well, I'm looking at it right now on your site, Hormigo. And most people would never be able to tell the difference between that and like Sapile 
or African mahogany. It's a red wood, you know, it's a red exotic. Maybe. Yep. You know, it could be very, very dense. <laughs> could be, could be bloodwood. Could be maybe some, some sapelia-ish, something like that. You know, and as far as the maker is concerned, it's hitting that color palette. It's hitting that look, and it doesn't really matter what it is. So here is, and and the the issue has always been in my world, like we could bring in these other unheard of species, and we can't sell them because. We're dealing with larger customers, manufacturers that have built their business around this species. They get how that species works. You know, to change it is going to throw a, a monkey wrench in their entire operation. Um, they don't. They don't want to chance it, so they're going to stick to like the number of people that dug their heels in on mahogany in 2008 when it was CITES listed, and we told them, "Look, guys, you're going to have to start buying an African variant." No, 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 Wait, we're going. We, we can't do it. We else. can't do it. And today they're all on Sapili. Every single one of them is on Sapelia yep. or maybe Utili um, because, well, although the genuine forestry is actually getting quite better, you know, don't tell anyone, but CITES worked. Um, <laughs> but here we are 10, 10, 12 years later, and things are starting to look better in that particular species. Um, so everybody else has moved over to Sapili. Well, if I were to go to them and say, okay, now you've got to take this other species, um, and they'll say, well, why bother? There's more Sapili than, you know, than ever. Uh, and it's a really well-managed forestry. Nope, we're going to stick with Sapelia. Absolutely not. We're not going to change. Not going to change at all. Um, but, it definitely complicates things. <laughs> yeah, no, yes. no, there's no doubt. But when you are, on one hand, you're dealing with um, a slightly smaller market. You're dealing with uh, more of an end user, um, more of a hobbyist. But then you also have the ability to deal with the people that the trend, the design trends are, are going towards unique you know, the, the rustic thing is a big deal, but also being able to tell a story with the wood uh, and say that this was, you know, reclaimed from this building here, or like you said, the humanitarian side of this story. Um, you know, we're, we're actually teaching, this is going to sound so ethnocentric and it's not what it's meant to sound like, but we're teaching some of these countries how to run proper silviculture because they don't know that, you know, they're surrounded by this glorious forest, um, but they they don't know how to run a kiln. They don't know how to run a sawmill. Um, so sure. you Absolutely. you have to you have to go in and and first of all, I mean, you want to train them, and they'll be like, "Oh, this is great," but unless we can make money on it, we don't care. So you have to create a market. They have to you have to buy hormigo, or they're just gonna burn it, or they're gonna well, throw yeah, it in the I mean, ground. You know? you know, it it opens up more markets as well, though, too, for us because yeah, you know, you you go in there and you buy you know, some mainstream stuff, you know, tiger wood. Yeah. But then it also opens up the avenues of these logs that would either be wasted or, you know, you know, rolled into mulch or whatever, but we can get some really cool species and they're absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. I think that's uh, Yes. It's been a little bit tough trying to, trying to get them to the market as far as, you know, people are like Hormigo. What is Hormigo? I've never even heard of it. Right. (laughs) Salam. What is Salam? We're picking on Hermigo in this show. It's just because I was. Yeah, well, Hermigo's, you know, um, you know, there's like you know, Pook Day. There's there's a bunch of weird woods out there. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, what and, else? And it's it's been kind of fascinating for me because I consider myself to know a lot about wood. And I get people email me like, I just bought this wood from this local sawmill guy. And I'm like, I have no clue what that is. I never yeah. heard of that before. It's like this is yep. exciting, new woods to learn about. Yay! Mm-hmm. No, I think it's I think it's pretty cool. And you know, um, Chechen. I mean, you know, Chechen's I don't yeah. think is a 
super available wood. No. I mean, it's around, but uh, we have some amazing, we have a whole bowl of a Chechen log that is quilted, a quilted Chechen log in the full oh, wow. bowl. That's going to go into kiln here in about two months, but the stuff's stunning. Dibs. You know, the, a lot of, I call dibs. <laughs> yo, there's, there's, it's probably a four or 500 board foot log. It's, it's a nice, nice size log. So nice. Yeah. Wow. It's beautiful. Unfortunately, it's all cut four quarter because they were running a small mill and they had to split it in half, but it's all book mashed and so bowled up. But, um, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of, so cool let's, stuff. Let, let's get into, um, cause obviously the, the, the elephant in the room here is anytime you talk exotic, legality, sustainability, they're all going to come up. So you yeah. are working with a broker, which kind of puts you one step closer that the importer of record is the person you're buying from. Um, so that oh. makes it a little bit yeah. easier to trace that chain of custody. Um, and, and certainly I'm not asking you to, to divulge anything in particular, but how do you, how do you manage your supply chain? How do you ensure that what you're selling has been harvested legally, sustainably, all that fun stuff. Um, that is basically done on my broker side or my importer uh -huh. side. Okay. But he is a very big stickler on, on keeping everything legal and, you know, as far as, you know, following all the guidelines and stipulations that are out there to make sure that everything is done by the book. Uh, mm -hmm. He has paperwork to back everything, everything up. That's the right answer, yeah. by the way. Um, <laughs> I, I set you up there, but th that's the misconception is. And I often will tell people, look, if, if you have concerns about this, talk to who you're buying it from. Ask them. And probably they won't know, um, but they'll be able to point you to who would know. Um, or they'll tell you, well, I bought it from this guy, um, you know, and, and OK, well, who did he buy it from? Eventually, you get to a person who does know, because legally, you, Goodwoods, is not responsible for maintaining this paperwork. Um, I mean, eh, Lacey Act is... Yeah, there's, there's some there. <laughs> Lacey Act is vaguely worded enough that technically yeah. I could buy it from you and I'm responsible for it. But there, the, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife is not concerned um, now, anyway, with, with busting you know, the local sawmill or busting the woodworker. They want to... They want to talk to the importer of record because that's who they can trace. So right. let's let's rephrase this question. When you started doing business with this importer, how did you vet them? How did you, I mean, you hadn't built a relationship at this point. How do you know that you're buying from a good person? <laughs> um, I liked him and I liked his character. <laughs> I went out on a whim. No, I get that. You got to do that. I guess I was start. very. I guess I was very excited to get the imports in that maybe I didn't. Could have maybe have done a little bit more homework on him, but no, he's he's turned out to be a great stand-up guy and uh, very reliable, dependable. We work we work very closely together for about a year and a half now, so uh, I trust him implicitly. And, and I here know he again, keeps very good records. This is one of those things where like you have to go with that gut, like that's. You know, like people, we know who's trying to sell watches out of the back of a car, you know, sure. um, there, there's a certain shadiness there. But today, if, say, you brought in, let's pick a sighty species, Cocobolo, um, he brought some Cocobolo to you. <clears throat> you know that Cocobolo is a sighty's Appendix 2 species. And you say, hey, um, do you have paperwork on this? Like, if you were to challenge him, would he be able to... 100%. Uh, 
set your mind at ease. And that's it right there. You know, and, and what that looks like. And here's the other thing, folks, there's not a magic document, you know, with a big CITES stamp or a U.S. Lacey, you know, Fish and Wildlife stamp on it. There's not one document. There's not 10 documents. There is a chain of documents and emails and conversations and visits to log yards, visits concessions, third party auditors that have have actually they actually have stamped. OK, so there is a stamp somewhere along the way. Um, there is a <laughs> massive amount of paperwork that goes into this. So the 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 answer to this question and thank you, Josh, for being a guinea pig here is no, um, no you do kind of have to start with your gut. Um, but then you just have to start asking questions and you'll quickly realize it's not a simple here's the document you know, yes, this is legal. Um, well, yeah, it is either yes or no, it's legal. Um, it's a, it's a yes. And here's 1700 pages to show you that it's legal. Right. To back this up to show this is legal. Right. Because legal and illegal is not like, there's not a switch that you flip and it suddenly becomes illegal because the vague nature of the laws that make it legal or legal or illegal mean that there's so many ifs and buts and things that need to happen in order for you to say this isn't legal i can't necessarily say it's illegal but i have my suspicions and it's at that point then you have to walk away but if you're looking at this and you're going no this is good this i feel good about this i feel legit he's showing me this correspondence here that technically under the law under the u.s lacey act and i'm quoting u.s lacey at this point you have done quote due diligence um, end quote. That's exactly what it says. So I, I'm, I'm using you as a guinea pig here just to show that no, you know, some of it is, is, a, is a gut feeling. Some of it is you got to build that relationship. You've got to do business with him. You got to take that leap. You know, maybe you don't go all in <laughs> and buy three containers, um, but you know, <laughs> you, you start small, you see what the quality looks like. Um, you see, cause there's also um, forgetting about legality um, and, and ecological issues, there's quality of work. What does the sure, grade look absolutely. like? But here's the other thing. Importing logs is very, very hard to do. In most instances, yes. it is illegal to import a log. The logs must be sawn. Yeah. Oh, it, there, are, there are some instances, and there is a mill not far from you um, that can do it. And there are ways to do it. It's, it's very expensive. It's very time consuming. Um, it requires a visit, an in-person visit in order to do it. So you're buying um, a quality here. How is this board sawn? Um, what kind of transformation of work has happened? Because back to what I was saying earlier about some of these third world countries, they've never run a sawmill before. They haven't a clue how to, how to saw for yield, or they don't understand the market. So they're not really knowing what they're sawing. Sometimes they've done some air drying. Did they stack and sticker it? Did they vertically dry it? What the hell do they do to it? You know, um, yeah. sometimes the law says there needs to be a certain percentage of transformation. And what they did was quickly saw the board and cut a tenon onto the end, like a one yep. inch long tenon on the end. And that qualifies as enough percentage, but nothing else was done. And the board is like check to hell, you know, or checking like crazy once it goes in the container. Right. So you have to, you have to take that leap of faith by that initial, you know, whatever it is, hundred board feet, 500 board feet, 5,000 board feet, um, and, and assess like, what is the sawmill doing? And do I even want to buy from the sawmill from a quality perspective? Then you can also I mean, along the way assess legality and sustainability and all that fun stuff. Let's be honest, Shannon. All I mean, everything that, especially in this whole urban logging, and even even bringing in exotics. I mean, 
again, it's all, you know, you got to go with your gut, but it's, it's all crapshoot. Yes. It's all gamble. Everything that you do is a gamble. It's, uh, you know, yeah. no risk, no reward. So sometimes you just have to take those risks and, right. you know, sight unseen and, and hope for the best. That's so refreshing to hear. Cause again, this is why this entire conversation, like it can be spun any way you want. If you want to fall on an environmental side and say that all logging is evil, it's so easy to spin it that way. And then I can just as easily spin it back the other way, pro-logging, um, because there's just so many variables in this. Um, ultimately, you need to have a solid feeling about who you're doing business with. Um, you need to just keep everything. It's like the taxes, yep. people. Keep every damn receipt <laughs> and hang on to for it for 20 years. years. They say seven yep. <laughs> years and you're good. Don't believe them. <laughs> yeah. Hang on to your Follow receipts away in the basement somewhere. Yeah. Well, let's, <laughs> let's wrap this up and say, um, I mean, first of all, fascinating conversation. Anytime I get a chance to geek out about drying kilns and CITES, I'm happy, but, yeah, um, any, you can come check these things out anytime you want. I'll give you even, I'll give you an even better rundown on them. That's I'm, I'm there. Um, mainly because I brought up Catalpa and you said Catalpa, I actually want to build, I've got a design in mind and I want, I want an Oak ish looking wood, but not Oak. And that's Catalpa for me. So, yep, yep. um, so, so where do people, where do people find Goodwoods Lumber LLC? How do we look you up and, uh, how do they do business with you? Uh, you can look us up online, uh, www.goodwoodslumber.com. Basically it's a website. We don't have the best website is what it is. Um, all right. but we all also right. have a, uh, Shopify account on there too. We have a lot of slabs online. Um, yeah. we just opened this Shopify account a few months ago, so we're still kind of working on it. Um, there's a 150 slabs, domestic stuff up there. Um, we're working to get a lot of exotic slabs and stuff up on, on that site as well for purchase or, you know, even if it just helps drive people into the store to see it in person. And I'm assuming we're talking local pickup, right? Are you shipping? Uh, no, we can ship. We can also ship. Really? Yeah, How we does can that work? Ship. I mean, basically, I assume that, box and. <laughs> I mean, I assume that just uh, yeah. gets quoted after the fact. Like you check out and then it does. Yes. Okay. Check out or our numbers on there. You can contact us or email us. Um, based on size and weight is typically how it's done. So okay. you know, if, if if the slab shipping to Texas, we'll have to call the. Uh, the LTL company and get the quote on the weight and size. And then that'll be added to the backside of the order. If you have a customer, we, we do add a little bit on there for crating as well. Yeah, I would imagine. So if you have a customer that say they're looking at one of your slabs and they're thinking, okay, uh, I'm just, I'll pick up Norway maple slab. It's 12 quarter, 82 inches long and it's wide 30 ish, 20 ish inches wide. Um, and they're thinking, okay, I want to build a side table and I really only need 30 inch links. Will you cut it down? Will that help on shipping? Sure. If, uh, you know, they would definitely, obviously the slab would have to be paid for in advance before we chop yeah, yeah. anything yeah, off. Yeah, of course. Um, no, but yeah, I can certainly, I can do whatever the customer needs. You know, we're a small outfit. We're happy to, we don't have to play by corporate rules all the time. We can pretty yeah, much very nice. do whatever's necessary. So, so the easy answer folks, if you're looking through this, this, uh, uh, website here and you're looking at the the beautiful stuff you do have a lot of walnut good lord um and you're you're thinking man i want that but i live in texas uh that doesn't mean anything give them a call um there's probably something they can do to help out but honestly you're kind of nicely centrally located um if anybody is completely unfamiliar with pennsylvania york county um shrewsbury is not far over the border from maryland 
um, probably, what would you say, about an hour from Baltimore, maybe? Um, yeah, and, not even. 40, 40, 40, 45 minutes. Yeah, maybe 30 minutes from Harrisburg and maybe 40 minutes from, from Philadelphia. So nice, uh, nice and easy to get to. Um, beautiful countryside. Go to Longwood Gardens and look at some trees while you're up there. You know, sure, why not? <laughs> uh, visit the Winchester Museum, look at some gorgeous furniture and uh, buy some wood while you're there. That's fantastic. Absolutely. Um, and if you're not already following, go to Goodwoods Lumber LLC on Instagram. You'll see some beautiful pictures here. Cool exotics, lots of lots of sticked and stackered lumber that makes you want to drool and battleship planer now. Very cool stuff. Um, <laughs> That's and the rest of my day. You, you've got a retail facility, like an actual shop there. What are your hours? Yeah, uh, we are open Tuesday through Friday from 8 to 5. Mm -hmm. Sorry, we close at 4.30 on Fridays. And then uh, Saturday from 8 to 2. Very nice. Hear that, folks? He's open on Saturday. <laughs> That's a rarity in the lumber yeah. business. I hear that all the time. Yeah, well, How am I supposed to buy this? I got to take off work to come buy it. Uh, sorry. With a retail business, we quickly learned that you have to have a Saturday hour. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, uh, Josh, this has been fantastic. Um, this is, yeah, again, it, this is like merely a, a, a personal recording for me because it's like, why have I been up here to visit? There's, there's some stuff. We need to talk. There's some species that uh, I'm going to be buying from you very shortly here. So, um, yeah. Uh, so I'll, I'll come buy something from you in the next couple of months and then wait another 15 years and come back and buy something from you again. <laughs> uh, hopefully it's not that long. Yeah. But I, I understand from your, you know, where you work, you have access to some beautiful lumber. I've got to got to have those unusual things for the tabletop or for the drawer fronts. You know, I can build the case sides out of boring old commercially what. available stuff. We, uh, we got a ton of stuff in it's called Denye. It's out of Africa. Denye. It is stunning. It'll be the EPA substitute, but it is beautiful lumber. There's about 30,000 board feet of it too. So how do you spell that? D N Y A. Y A or Y E? It's like, Huh. Yeah, there's it. It sounds like it'd be Denya, but it's Denye. I wonder if it has an alternative name. Okay, I'm I'm seeing it now. Interesting. I'll have to look into that. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. I may very, I may know nice. this. I may not. This is one of those fun things about exotics. Is it goes by 17 different names, depending oh, on whether yeah. you're talking to somebody you know in Cameroon or you're talking to somebody in Brazil or whatever. It's totally different. Well, those are totally. I have learned a lot in the past year, year and a half. Trust me. Yeah. Cool stuff. Well, anyway, um, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. And, you know, it's always just fun to kind of highlight another mill and understand what you're doing. And sounds like, I mean, you've, you've come such a long way um, and really just grown this into a, an incredible business. So congratulations on all Thank that and good luck in the future. Yeah, thanks, Shannon. I appreciate that. We've definitely worked hard for it, so. <laughs> yeah.